to another edition of Reptile Fight Club. Um, got your hosts here, Justin and Chuck. How's it going, man? Good. How are you, dude? Good, good. Good. Excited, uh, for, this, uh, excited for this episode. Yeah, yeah. This should be fun. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also very excited for this. Um, so I guess uh, just a, just kind of a little introduction if you're new to the podcast, uh, we fight here, right? So we, we have two different sides of, a, of a, uh, an issue or a debate that, that exists within herpeticulture. And um, we arbitrarily flip a coin and then whoever wins the coin toss gets to pick what side they uh, defend or you know promote. And uh, so uh, you may not agree with the side you get. <laughs> and so um, it can be a little interesting. You've got to kind of find the other side to the argument. So that's kind of the point of this to give give each argument two sides. So today's topic. Well, I don't know. You got anything going that you need to get off your chest up front? No, <laughs> no, not really. Not you. Um, what happened? I I don't know. I had a, a trip up into the mountains. Saw some birds. That was good. <laughs> nice. Um, nice. Yeah, it's always good to get back into nature. But uh, yeah, got some got some more. Uh, Amy eggs on the way. Some of the uh, Centralian knobtail geckos. I think she's laying right now, so that's Sweet. exciting. Always oh, good to get the eggs. The the babies that hatched are fantastic. They're so yeah. awesome. Nice. They just shed again and they're just glowing. So I, uh, it's always fun to work with uh, cool geckos for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, but otherwise the season's moving forward. I, I've got a bunch of anteresia that took without even tricking them or. You know, I, I just threw in a pink mouse and a bunch of pygmies ate first try. <laughs> nice. That just doesn't happen. So, you know, like five or six of them took right off the bat. So that's going to save me a lot of headaches and <laughs> stomach aches over the mm-hmm. next year or so. But all right. Well, um, so today's topic, uh, UV, right? And uh, should be an interesting uh, discussion. Uh, we've got a couple really bright guys here to, with, with us today, um, Ryan McVeigh um, and Zach Lofman. My pronoun- I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I, I never know which way to say it, but I think that's, yeah, yeah that's getting right. a thumbs up. So, <laughs> All right. So we've got these guys on today to, to uh, discuss the kind of pros and cons or, or usage uh, of UV in the reptile industry in, in the terrarium mainly. So uh, we'll kind of hear from both sides on, of that that topic. So let's see. Uh, welcome to the podcast, you guys. Why don't you give us a little introduction of yourself? Uh, you want to go first, Ryan? Sure. So um, no, thanks for having me, guys. Um, I've been dealing with reptiles for a long time, like since I can <laughs> remember. I'm pretty sure yeah. I've like birth. Birth. I just walked out, you know, crawled outside and caught a toad or something. But yeah, <laughs> yeah and, you've uh, been around for a while and, and, <laughs> yeah. and uh, done a lot of great stuff. So, yeah, what's kind of the highlights of your herpetological career? Um, you know, founding the Madison Area Herp Society, um, being on the uh, uh, being a uh, state representative for Wisconsin for US ARC, um, cool. ru- managing and running Zilla for six years, and uh, oh, yeah. now. Now starting our, my own company has really kind of been it. So being awesome. able to launch VivTech's been really cool. Cool, very cool. All right, Zach, how about yourself? Yeah, so um, Zach Lofman. I'm a professor at West Liberty University, and here at the university we have a zoo science major, and I'm the guy cool. in charge of that major. And as part of the major, uh, I kind of had the dream of being told to build a reptile collection. So <laughs> uh, you know. I started with a water monitor because I couldn't have one of those at home and 
yeah. we're currently building a 14 by 10 foot enclosure for it as we speak. Awesome. So, uh, yeah. and my duties with that major are I, I teach uh, an undergrad class and a graduate class called herpetology and herpetoculture. And basically we cover reptile classic herpetology class uh, for the lecture part, evolution, taxonomy, behavior, biology, natural history. And then the lab is um, all herpetoculture. So uh, one of the things we obviously have two labs on is uh, proper lighting and UV radiation for herbs in captivity. So oh, perfect. Yeah, that's that. And I'm <laughs> yeah. like everybody here, lifetime herp nut. Um, I've been keeping since I was in, technically my first herp was when I was seven. I'm 42 and <laughs> have not, there's not been a, a second since that time. I have not had at least one. So very cool. Yeah, I think I'm in the same boat. I think I went a couple years. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I went two years in grad school. I think technically, uh -huh. um, but and then speaking of grad school, anybody listening to this, this is my shameful plug. Uh, I also run the <laughs> evidence-based herpetoculture laboratory, which has graduate students who are doing theses in herpetoculture. So if you want to do this for your master's degree, and you're listening to this, uh, hit me up. Yeah, very cool program. I'm I'm actually on one of the committees for one of your mm -hmm. students. So that you are. Um, yeah, very very cool program, and and really kind of pushing things forward. I think that's a great way to do it, and yes. um, some really neat projects that can be done. If you have something you're wondering about in herpetology and want to do a master's degree, hit Zach up. That's mm -hmm. that's a cool program. All right, well, you guys ready to fight? We I'm ready. No holds barred. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got the, the coin toss to get out of the way. Um, let's uh, have Zach call it. Um, okay. You want to call it in the air? Yeah. Here we go. All right. Okay. Tails. It is tails. Okay. <laughs> you get to choose your topic, and then mm. you get to choose whether you want to go first or second. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think if I made uh, Ryan argue against UV, he would promptly leave his house <laughs> and play in traffic. <laughs> so, his head might explode. And I don't want to yeah. do that. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, so I, we'll, I will take the. Yeah. I will question UV on this one, but I'm going to throw out a disclaimer before we go any further. <laughs> I am 100% on team UV. So right. I'm just going to yeah. be the devil's advocate for tonight. Yeah, so. I think we all are. I think that's yeah. fair to say yeah. that everybody thinks that UV is important and reptiles have evolved to use UV. Yeah. I guess it's just maybe some of the points of application and, and things like that that we could probably uh, argue against. So, all right, well, let's get into it. Do you want to go first or do you want to defer to your opponent there, Zach? I will defer to Ryan. Okay. Good call. Ryan. Man. Good call. That's right there. I'm always a fan of the deferment. Yeah, defer. Okay, Ryan, the floor is yours. Uh, we'll, we'll try to, you know, have maybe a few minutes of, of your, you know, bringing up a, a topic and then Zach will have a, a time to counter, uh, that topic and, and we'll go from there. All right, what you got? <laughs> <laughs> the floor is yours, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> like I, well, I don't even know just, how to. I don't even know how to uh, start that. The sun exists okay. outside. <laughs> the light comes from the sun, makes all things alive. Argue that. <laughs> uh, okay, so I guess in your in your um, mind, what's kind of the biggest reason that we should use uh, UV in in our terrariums or, or, you know, the, the biggest benefit, I guess. I think, I think really one of the, the big things that everybody generally, everybody knows UVB. A lot of people that know UVB 
when we talk about UVB and calcium uh, uh, vitamin D synthesis and calcium absorption and the necessary necessity of all reptiles to be able to have UVB. But one thing that we don't talk about nearly as much as UVA and mm. one and, and something to know is UV, UVB can be supplemented. Like you can supplement D3, not it's not as effective and you miss a lot of stuff, but you could supplement D3 for the calcium absorption. But you cannot supplement the effects of, of UVA, which in it, which interacts with the serotonin in the animal's brains. So it has a lot to do with their natural instincts and behavior. It, it regulates their circadian rhythm, their, so their day-night cycle. Um, and a lot of reptiles actually see the UVA spectrum, which we can't see. So it's a lot of how they see each other, how they see um, their surroundings, how they find food, things like that. So without having that in every single animal's enclosure, you're essentially forcing them to live in uh, with seasonal depression and be colorblind. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Zach, what do you think? So definitely agree that UVA is important. Uh, definitely agree that UVB is important. So what I would question is the technology we have today. Is it really truly adequate enough to replicate what's occurring in nature? And do we have the instruments and the technology to actually measure that in a manner that is reptile specific? So most of the UV meters that we, we have, you know, some of them have, are, have in herpetoculture have been kind of taken from the unit of measurement, which full thing, you know, full disclosure, biologist here. So units of measurement, that's kind of where I'm at. But <laughs> I know that we've taken those and then kind of converted them into the Ferguson index to make it so that we have a you know, one to 12 scale or something to that effect. Um, but when we when we convert to that, is that really measuring the, the UVA in a manner where we really kind of get a fundamental understanding or have we taken this really convoluted, complicated process in, in, in technology and kind of dumbed it down to a point where we may be making mistakes and we don't realize we're making mistakes because our instrument of measurement isn't what it needs to be to actually get what the reality of what's going on. Um, with the UVA, I, I absolutely agree that, you know, it's critical. The, the, if, if you have a chameleon, for example, they literally cannot communicate without it properly. Um, but to that effect, if you're dosing them with too much UVA, uh, you know, UVA penetrates muscle tissue, it goes deep into cells, and you absolutely run the risk of causing mitotic problems which can lead to various types of cancer. It leads to, you can fry the cells and the retina just like you can with UVB. So my argument would be, is it more important to have, you know, the technology where you can do this inside or can we just you know, truly replicate nature by herpetoculturalists figuring out ways to, if they can maintain their organisms outside? Because if you, you know, now as a conservation biologist, flat out say there's a million potential problems there if you don't put a you know good lid on but for the sake of argument which is the point of the podcast could we not get the best result of the sun by simply employing the sun well i see i totally agree with that i live in northern illinois i no longer keep reptiles then because i can only keep them for three months outside yeah. So I think obviously one giant setback and that is a, it's a good point. There really is no way to completely, as far as I can, as, as it, it, to truly replicate the entire spectrum of, of the sun, 
without using a wide array of bulbs and a ton of heat and electricity, and it would be a little bit over the top. We can, however, um, pick out the wavelengths that are specifically needed by reptiles or used throughout you know, the 80 years that they've been doing studies with UVB and UVA on which, which wavelengths they utilize to process a lot of their bodily functions. And by knowing which wavelengths those are, then we can dial in the lights to produce that. But there is, you, you are right, there is a lot of, there is still a lot of unknown to an extent with UV. Like granted, providing what we're doing in captivity right now is better than nothing. And it's mm-hmm. better, it's never gonna be as good as the sun, but it's always gonna be better than nothing. And that really is the reality. And we can't put something as good as, even if we could, which technically we could make a bulb that would be as good. It would be way too intense. It would be way too too much for even advanced or like intermediate keepers to even understand to not kill their animal. Um, Just like you said, with being able to overdo it, you know, with, with, with any kind of lighting. Um, But the other thing too is, is just understanding how all of that works is I think one of the, the bigger downfalls of what's going on with UV in herpeticulture is there's just this really, it's been made over the years to sound so complicated and that you just need to know it. You just need you, you just need the bulb. You don't need to know why it does calcium stuff. Like you need it. Everybody knows UVB, but if you actually ask them like, what does it actually do and how does that work and what matters in the wavelengths? Almost nobody, there's very, very few people who could actually answer that question unless they've done a lot of research on their own um, in order to answer that question. So um, one th- that is that is something, and there, there, again, there's downfalls too with when it comes to man-made UV lighting. We are, we're able to specify which wavelengths we want the peaks of that power to be at, but that can also be a bad thing. So in, in a positive way of it's awesome for us to be able to really drive the energy from that light to the wavelengths that the animals need it in, that's a positive. The negative is if something goes wrong with the way that that's designed, then I can make a light that under a UV index would look great, but it'll kill your animal or it'll provide no UVB yeah. whatsoever just because of how the, the UV index works. It's a weighted mm-hmm. system that was created by a Canadian meteorologist to tell you based on your how light your skin is if you're going to get a sunburn has nothing to do with reptiles whatsoever. <laughs> like it was just used as, as a way to kind of define like a better, uh, it's, it's a better weight of the three types of UV lighting and it's a better way to read it. But because we're doing man-made bulbs, you can trick it. So really what everybody needs to know is you really need to have two, you know, multiple meters to, to be able to test the UVB plus the UV index plus, you know, a lot of stuff. But no, there's that. That is a hole that we can dig into, with like really deep, and, and and the measuring and the and the accuracy of what we're doing compared to sunlight. But I think that based on the keepers' abilities and our ability to get, to get those products to people that allow them to be successful, um, I think we're in a, we're in a good spot and we're on a good path to slowly increasing. And that's one thing I do like is we're slowly creating different types of bulbs and new technologies and 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 getting a little bit closer every time and without jumping too far ahead. Cause that is the one thing you can run into with a problem with this kind of lighting is going too far too fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Not that any of that was really a counter argument <laughs> as much as a, yeah, yeah thank you for helping me. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> but at the same, at the same time, I mean, when it comes to this, is the weird part with UV, especially for us to, 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 to go back and forth on this is that 
there, there are some arguments of like the quality of the UV for, or, or if we're able to measure it properly, which again, solar meters, the number one thing everybody uses it. None of them peak exactly at where we need it to. Nothing is nothing. We have reads perfectly. Nothing. All of them get us close it close enough to feel comfortable and to know if there's danger, but not enough to get an accurate. Like if you were looking for an accurate reading on any UV bulb, you have to use a photo spectrometer period. Like it's, and I'm, and I'm assuming that's if if you're going to buy a a, a lab quality instrument uh, for measuring, that's going to be an expensive piece of equipment. Yeah, we uh, VivTech just bought one. They're about four grand. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's for the cheap like little model. So yeah. it's it's not something everybody's going to be doing to test their light bulb. Um, yeah. And and but in reality, at the same time, I don't know that we need to be that specific, especially when we're talking in the trade and talking with you know pet quality lighting. The, the reality is we, if the bulbs are producing what's needed to be produced, and we're assuming that that is the case, and they're, we're measuring them, they look good, they're, they're in the right, right wavelengths, they have the right outputs in microwatts, they look good, then what you're really using your meters for as a hobbyist is really just tracking the degradation of the UV. Because the UV degrades over time, the light will still work, even though it's not putting out enough for UV for your animal, and you're not going to know that unless you're able to test it. Um, so, I mean, really, when it comes to measuring type equipment, especially in the hobby, we're really tracking, we're tracking changes. We're not looking for exact specific outputs. I would assume it's a quality control thing for you guys as well. I mean, you, you want to yep. be testing bulb batches to make sure that you're getting relatively the same uh, readings from batch to batch. Yeah. And for us, it yeah, exactly. For us, it makes a lot more sense to do that because... We, one, we hand test every single bulb. So out of all the bulbs that we have, uh, you can buy online, every single one of those has been handled at least three times to be tested. Um, and this is going to allow us to really nail that down, get our specs for our manufacturer really dialed in. And then as well as, as there's new technologies that come out, we can start to test them. I can do all the testing. We can do all the testing and make sure that this is going to work, that it's hitting the parameters it needs to, and that it's hopefully fulfilling that next step of technology in order to create that perfect bulb. Um, at least, but we need, I need to have that in order to see if it's even there. Um, and I need that kind of accuracy to make sure that those lights are producing it, are producing the right wavelengths and the right lighting so that when it goes out into the hobby and you guys are using it, you don't have to check to make sure you are, as a consumer, are able to know that, okay, I can see the spectrometer reading on the website. I know that it's giving the right numbers. You don't have to do all the work that I had to do to make sure to get all those lines to line up and get all those diodes to work correctly. Okay. Sure. Zach, you want to touch on some of these uh, topics that have been brought up? Yeah, I'll, I'll try. And <laughs> remember, Team UVB, but not today. So, uh, so, so my question with the light bulbs and it is like with this new technology that's coming out with the, the LED-based UVB, uh, when you're dealing with the sun and you've got an animal outside, essentially what they're being hit with is a full spectrum of light. That's why we say full spectrum light lighting. So they're getting infrared, vis- visible light, UVA, UVB, and um, hopefully never any UVC thanks to our atmosphere. Uh, but I've all, but one of the, the, the challenges with the light bulbs is old light bulbs, new light bulbs, is that as these things degrade, every now and then you can get a wonky bulb that decides to go the other way, and then suddenly you get these peaks. And Hmm. why would you risk the health of your animal 
with a light bulb, if we can supplement, if there's the possibility of it peaking out and then basically irradiating the animal with way too much of a given radiation, like why, why, why risk that? that that's an argument that I know the counter argument to, <laughs> but <laughs> I hear all the time. And since it's my job today to be this person, you know, I'm not going to necessarily want to move forward with basting my animal in, in radiation that I, as a keeper, don't understand. Uh, so why why risk it if herpetoculture came up with the, the technology back in the day of, you know, we, we have Rapashi and various uh, D3 powders that there's actually been a fair amount of research that's gone into. You know, you can, you can supplement on that front. Um, you can do the, just expose them outside to get them the calcidiol, calcitriol, all that kind of good stuff going. Uh, it, it just could be somewhat risky. And then the other thing I'd like to bring up is that when, when you say that you do all the work so that the keeper doesn't, does that mean that essentially we just simply put this light bulb in and we never have to worry about it ever again until it burns out? Like, is that the, the, the way of the future is you don't have to understand the science um, or the technology. You can just use it and your beardy is going to be fine. Like, I, I, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I, as a, as a, I'll put my science cap on and would say that I still think you would absolutely have to incorporate some kind of knowledge base. Like, every keeper needs to have a fundamental understanding of this if they're going to use it. Because if they don't have an understanding of it and they go and they buy the 12.0 UVB bulb for their uh, leopard gecko and then they put it on for 12 hours a day, sure, that's going to probably make the leopard gecko run and hide because it can see that. And that's, you know, it's being irradiated with that. But at, at the end of the day, though, like, do we really want to be promoting this with, with novice keepers? Is there some other angle of attack for this that we should be thinking of? And Lord, forgive me for my sins. There you go. <laughs> hey, Zach, I just I just had a quick question to interpose here. Um, is is that a uh, you know worrying about kind of a shift in the in the spectrum? Is that um, for all UV lights that we might use, or is that specific to a certain kind? Zach, yeah. Oh, no? oh. Um, <laughs> was that for me? <laughs> it, it's for all. It could be for all. Uh -huh. You know, it, it just really, it depends on your knowledge base when you're, when you're going into it. Um, okay. So, you know, some, my understanding, and this will be pivoted straight to you, Ryan, is that with the, with the LED light bulbs, they're, 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 they're basically, you're, you're honing in on a very specific set of nanometers. So yeah. you don't really have like that whole spectrum of UVB, but you're, you're hitting like right at what is it 290 or 280 or whatever the, the nanometers are i'm sure you can you know, yeah 295 yeah. <laughs> yeah but but i but when it comes to the actual physiology of what goes on i know that certain wavelengths of light are responsible for more d3 synthesis than other wavelength wavelengths of light and the only thing i would do to like pose a question is have we done the science to know yet what the actual magical wavelength is in the uvb spectrum to get the right amount of D3 synthesis, because if you can actually, if you irradiate with too much UVB, you can get into hypercalcification and you're basically taking in too much. And since you, you, you need that UVA radiation to basically stop it. Like, you know, that's the trigger. And if you don't have that trigger, 
what's going on. So like, have we done the science to know what's the breaks and what's the right wavelength so that we're not actually, you know, killing them by loving them? <laughs> yeah. No. So no, thankfully there actually is, we do have all that. We have an enormous, so this is what's funny to me when it comes into like talking UVA and UVB, especially when you get into like hobbyists that are like, ah, like my animal doesn't need it. And I'm like, well, yeah, my kids don't need vegetables or baths or to brush their teeth, but like they'll live. That's just not the quality of life I want for them. So it's kind of the same thing. Like reptiles don't need it to live. So there's a lot of like argument against it, but there's studies that go back into the 1940s that show how the parietal eye in reptiles works, how that third eye in their brain works, how, how they see UV, how UVA lighting, UVB lighting affects them. Um, so within the, within the herpeticultural community, UV is this, thing we talk about like uh, some people are for it some are against it and in the scientific community 80 years ago they figured out they need it and we just didn't pay attention because it's another bulb and if i why why i just spent five thousand dollars on a lace monitor i don't want to spend forty dollars on another bulb i you know that just doesn't make sense mm -hmm. but like that's where you get people from but the problem is is that like there uh, we, uh, we know we all we do know if you know you know there, there is science out there that shows the huge need for these animals to have access to that kind of lighting for v, uh, vitamin D3 and for synthesis for reptiles, 296, 295 is right that perfect. That That's that magic number for them. Um, but they use all the way from 290 up to 335 nanometers. Um, and when it comes to the LED type lighting, that is one downfall. If you were to only use a single diode, if it was a one diode bulb, then yeah, you, you could be cutting out some aspects of the UV spectrum. Um, multiple diode bulbs are going to be better. Um, and then on top of it, the technology for those LEDs is continuously changing. Um, so it's going to continuously change and adapt. But um, right now, as is, we're able to dial in and get a good range um, within at least 10 to 20 nanometers of range that inside of that range where the reptiles are, which is about 40 nanometers total. Um, so we're catching a lot of that, that, the high points of those pieces of the spectrum that are where I put this, the, the more that the peaks that need to be hit for them to synthesize the most uh, D3 the, the most efficiently, we're able to dial into those. Um, but that is one downfall of UV, using any single bulb, any single bulb at all, even the LED, fluorescent, mercury vapor, any of them, they all lack something. They all lack part of the spectrum, it, whether it's whether it's colored visible light that they're missing blues or reds or whether it's you know, different parts of the UV spectrum or different, you know, wavelengths that they just don't peak at as high, there's always going to be problems. So the reality is in order to get a really true full spectrum and an, and not a marketing full spectrum because every full spectrum bulb is full visible color spectrum, not full spectrum light. So to get a full spectrum, a true full spectrum, you'd have to use multiple bulbs. Um, when it comes to the safety, I, I've never heard of a bulb going up after being used only going down just because of how they're made. So I'd be curious to see anybody seeing peaks after a burn-in just because that would be I'm not sure how the physics and chemistry would work to make that happen. If it wasn't like some kind of light or electrical pulse or increase in electrical power, just because when you're talking about the reason that UV bulbs degrade and a lot of people don't kind of realize this, but like let's talk fluorescent. So a fluorescent bulb is a tube filled with electrons with a phosphorus coating on the inside. So you have a ballast that builds up a ton of energy in a coil bulb. That ballast is in the base of the bulb and in a tube, it's in the fixture. It builds up a ton of energy and it 
punches that all those electrons with a ton of energy and they all fire up. That gives you your light. As those electrons are shooting around inside there, that energy is what you're seeing. Those electrons hitting the, the phosphor is what you're seeing as visible light. Some of that phosphor in there is what converts them from the visible spectrum into the UV spectrum. When it hits those phosphor particles, it burns them up. And in that burn up is when that changes spectrum. So over time, that's why you're slowly degrading the UV output because you're slowly burning up molecules of that that uh, chemical that's or that material that's used to change the spectrum. So over time, that's why why our bulbs burn out. Luckily, that's one thing I'm really liking with the LED is so far based on everything that uh, the studies that have been done and everything that we have with our bulbs and our manufacturer and the ones that are out there. The, the UV won't degrade enough to need to be replaced before the LED bulb burns out. So we're looking at like close to a four year lifespan with a, of, of UV output. Um, and the bulb lifespan is about four years. So um, even then, we're, I'm not sure after uh, in our testing in-house, where our, our, our uh, accelerated speed testing, um, we're actually after uh, over a year and a year and a quarter's worth of use, there's no drop in UV at all. Like we're getting the exact same numbers as the day I turned it on, so it's it. That's from, something. From, is that from intensity or is that from spectrum? Are you getting the same intensities or are you same, getting the same, same intensity? Same intensity. Okay. So so potentially you could have so as so like let's say I'm more familiar with phosphorescence. You know, you have a mixed gas tube that gets excited by electrons, and and as that as those gases get used up. Uh, that spectrum will change. I don't. I don't totally understand um, the the LED portion of that, but I mean, I would assume you do have to change LEDs because they do degrade over time. So, from what I found, that they like even the manufacturer you know, let me know that they're, they they have seen degradation, but I'm not seeing it. So we're watching it over multiples, and we're still not seeing much for degradation. So I'm curious if it's over a longer period of time. Maybe it's not a linear degradation. Um, so we're watching it, but, um, LEDs are different than all other bulbs. All other bulbs are passed through electricity. So that's where you're getting the light. The the electricity is passing through and coming out the other side and returning in an LED. It's a single point electrical, uh, electric, electric rate. It goes, the electricity going into the diode comes out as light. It doesn't, there is no return. So you don't see. That's why they're so efficient. Yeah, and that's why you, 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 you I think, and, and what it is, is it's basically a tiny little plate with pinholes punched in it, and depending on the size and the, and the arrangement of the pinholes, you change the wavelength. So once those are set, there's nothing that's degrading or burning up or being used. So unless it's jostled or hit or physically altered, I am not sure how mechanically, and I'm not, I understand the bulbs, I'm not an LED expert, but I, do, I don't see how, with what I know, how they would degrade uh, rather than just burning out or failing. So I don't so, see them having much of a degradation. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. So then my question, thinking biology, this is fun because we have an engineer <laughs> and a biologist. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So uh, biologically speaking, then, if, if you're going to – so am I understanding correctly that the LED bulbs are going to work because you've got the individual diodes on the on the, the bulb and then you've basically punched the holes and tweaked it such that you're going to, to create that wavelength, the, the nanometer output of light, and that's how you get – you dial it into those specific wavelengths? 
Yep. Basically it in a nutshell. Okay. Yeah. So then if those if certain wavelengths are important more important than others, are you a when 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 the organisms are basking and they're receiving the light, you know, there there is biological evidence that points towards even though our particular wavelength may not be overly, you know, they might not use it a lot, they still use it and they only need like 4% of radiation of, of that wavelength in a given day. So if they're being hit with a constant radiation of nanometers at certain certain wavelengths, but they're not getting that those residuals, so they're only getting the extreme all the time, can't that lead potentially to the hypercalcification? Uh, because my understanding is with the with the old school bulbs, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're you're kind of hitting them with multiple. They're, they're, you're, it's much easier to create a gradient, I would think, with the with the coil bulb or the tube bulb, just due to the way that the UV is created versus dialing it in, hitting it with electricity, and this nanometer comes out of the diode. So biologically speaking you would probably get a smoother gradient with the old technology than the new technology. So why would we go to this new technology that's kind of going against the bi biology in one sense? I'm not saying it's anti-DT. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to make an argument here. And, and that's, I mean, and that's, that's, that's a good question. So like when it comes to um, the fluorescence, that the phosphors that are used are extremely specific. So they're able to hit very tight wavelengths and peaks and wavelengths. They're, we're still hitting peaks with all of the old types, with all of the current other than LED types of UV. We're st we still have peaks. The, the peak just isn't as tight. So at the base of that peak, it widens out a little bit. So you'll get a little bit of other wavelengths, but there's still massive, there's still gaps in the wavelengths of, of all the bulbs. Um, and again, it really what it comes down to is to, to know, to know, I think more research would have to be done to find out how those different wavelengths over time are going to make a difference with or without them. And are we missing those with the old bulbs too? Are we hitting them? We would have, again, it comes down to if you really want full coverage, full wavelength, full everything, you need like five different bulbs to do it. Um, yeah. And right now there just isn't anything perfect, but which is why you need a different light for your plant lights and a different light for your UV and a different light for your heat and you know, all that stuff. But um, I think as we go forward, what we're what we're finding, and 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 as as when we get into LED, is we're looking at the big the big thing that LED for me really solves is less the 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 spectrum. I think it's going to get allow us to play with it a little bit more and get this to a better point. It's not right where we I think it needs to be yet, but it's 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 I would say it's equivalent or close to equivalent with what already exists, which also I don't think is quite where we need it to be yet. Um, so I think there's some possibility for growth with it. Um, but the one thing I really do love about the LED is an option, uh, it, it, even if we say it's equivalent to what exists and it's not an improvement in LED output, is the improvement in efficiency and longevity. And then the other piece is that it stays, It's when it's as far as I can tell, if this bulb is on in the next five years, if it's on, it's producing enough UV for your animal. And that is where in a, a ton of other types of technologies fall short is it, and the other part, too, is you were talking about, like, this is something that's that I've, I've had to explain a lot lately. And this is something that, that your whole listening, everybody needs to think about this for a second. We starting a herb society and trying to educate the public and educate new keepers on what it means. Like, 
to keep animals and understand the husbandry and the biology behind them that you don't feed them like a dog. And when people ask, how often do you feed your animal? And I say, when it looks like it's hungry. And that's not an answer they understand because I'm not feeding on a schedule. So it's difficult for people to get, understand just how to feed the reptile correct, let alone understand the lighting and how it works and all the synthesis, even just under, even just getting them to know UVB is a need for animals is still hard. I mean, it's hard. It's an, it's enough of a issue that we're having a talk about it. Like they, this is something that shouldn't be, it should be like a, well, yeah, of course you keep an animal inside an enclosure. Can't let it run around outside or you'll lose it. Should be the same thing. You have an enclosure, you have UVB and UVA, you need it. Should just be that easy. But one thing that, so this is but what I wanted to get to was when, when we're looking at running a rescue with Erica running a rescue in the house, we see a lot of the things that go wrong in the hobby. And it's not, it's not a lack of care. It's not a lack of wanting to learn. And that's what people don't understand. We all talk about how we need to get to those keepers. We need to educate them better. We need to get them to understand that they need to know more than they do for a dog or a cat when they walk into the store. But there's a huge fundamental problem in us thinking that we can ever fix that. And the problem is, the people that are going into like a Petco or PetSmart or a local pet store to get their first gecko, they don't know anything. They maybe may, and I'm assuming for a general per average person, let's say, they're more than likely the kid got excited, saw it at a friend's house, they learned about it in school, they saw one, they wanted one. Maybe they did some research, maybe they didn't, maybe it was online, so it was all worthless anyway. But who knows? You know, so it could have been a Facebook group and they are gonna put their bearded dragon on tile now. So <laughs> like they, they don't know where to get good information from. And then if they didn't do any research in the beginning, I don't blame them because if you go to, when I go to Petco to get dog food, I'm not expected to be an animal nutritionist to know which dog food and to go through the labels and understand. Now, a lot of people go, okay, I know I want grain free. I know my dog's allergic to salmon. This bag will work. But they're not, no one in that building knows like dog food down to the point of being able to explain it on the level we're explaining UV you just assume that the manufacturer has done that and that you have a quality product you can feed your dog. Same thing happens on the small animal and exotic side. So people come in and they see a kit. It says leopard gecko kit. This was designed by a company who makes its money selling products for reptiles. They are the authority on reptile care. So you assume as a consumer that you're going in and buying this box and it has everything in there that you need. Same thing happens if I get a puppy. They give me a kennel and they give me a leash and they give me a collar and they give me a bag of dog food. And I take care of a puppy because you take, you just you walk it, you clean its poop. And with reptiles, they don't even realize that it's not all the same thing. They don't all come from the same place. Every animal has different care. It's not like dog or cat. So the majority of what people see as pets, when they go into a pet store, they go in with this, this guise almost of like, everything I need to know is here for me to be successful. And that's where the problem lies in husbandry and I find in the hobby. And that's why I'm excited about something like the LED bulbs is because we can take that knowledge out. They don't need to know it. They, we just need to be able to create an enclosure and products for them that will help them be successful without them needing to know why it'll, they'll be access, successful with it. Because to think that we're going to get people to 10 years of herpeticultural knowledge to understand on the level that we do UV, how are you going to do that to somebody who just walked into Petco and is picking up their first bearded dragon and they're just buying a kit that says bearded dragon and assuming everything they need is in it. And they don't, there's not even this idea that, oh, I need to know more. 
Because when you get a if you go get a puppy, you don't go home and go, I need to know everything about this puppy. You kind of already know. You kind of you feel like you already know. Even when you leave the store, if you don't, they'll help you enough to feel like you got it. So the same thing happens with kits and with reptile. They make you feel like you've got it. Here's a box kit, and then you leave. And then there's no follow-up or anything. You're kind of left to swim out there alone. And then those people don't know what's in the kit, why it's in the kit, why it's there. The years of knowledge and stuff that went in to build that kit in the way that that manufacturer did. Or even how somebody at a pet store would tell you, set the cage up like this. Now, we know why we tell them to because we've been doing it for decades. And we know why those components need to be like that. But that person doesn't. And I think it's really hard for a lot of us a lot of times to take ourselves not even just back to being a kid – but try to remember the day you didn't like reptiles, what you'd think about them. I can't, I don't have that day. I don't know what that day is. So Jack, I can't, it's hard to relate. A, you got a response to that? I want to, I want to. Me? Yeah. I do. Uh, but I'm going to go to the middle though. I, I, I'm trying to do my anti-UV, but I can't do it on this one. I've got to go no, to the middle. That's fine. Go ahead. Because it has to deal with education and that's something that I'm really big on. I think that this is where herpetoculture just shoots itself right in the foot yep. historically. Because here we are, you know, debating this, and the science clearly demonstrates that these organisms need this to a certain degree or need it a lot. And so when that person that goes to Petco is all excited, and then they go onto social media, and then they join the bearded dragon group or the leopard gecko group, whatever group it is, and then they bring up UVB, and then they are immediately flamed by someone. That yep. then sends this message of, oh, whoa, 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 I don't need the UVB. Or what I what I think it does, you know, I, I've seen my students do this in the herpetoculture class, is it makes people overcompensate if you then are on the opposite side of it and say, oh, no, they need UVB. They've got to have UVB. And you're not teaching about UVB. Then that person goes out. They're standing at Petco. They don't know anything. And they buy the highest wavelength of UVB they can get. And then they irradiate their leopard gecko that's in an exo that's only eight inches tall. So, like, there's a flip side to that, which is um, the, the main point of this is just education. That's the piece that's missing the most. Yeah. And the tribalism of herpetoculture sets up a dynamic where if we were just as a, as a culture, be open-minded and stop saying, well, I've done this forever, so this is the way I'm going to do it. Like, that is the absolute worst flipping phrase anybody yeah. can say. Um, and if you say that, I don't care if you've bred whatever, 35 years, you can do it better if you look like everybody can. And so if that yep. ego would get out of there and we were to just simply look at the science, you know, talk about things, not yell at each other and just think, uh, we could get to that common point where we could have a light bulb and, and someone buys the light bulb at Petco and then they go home and they bring up a question and it's not, they're not entering this giant fray. It's just, oh, yeah, they need it, and here's why. Like, that's all we have to get to. Uh, and, and, and that doesn't matter if you're – that could be UVB, UVB, UVA. That could be naturalistic versus right. sterile. Like, literally, there's a million th- – this whole podcast <laughs> is around these hot-button topics and trying to get to that middle ground and show that we, we should be discussing those. So, and, so back to my side of the argument then <laughs> is, is then how do we educate – the, the public in a manner, because I, I will say that I, I do think that he, you know, the intention of just making a light bulb that you put into a, a socket and you're done. I like that. I think that's good. But at the same time, I still am going to come back to something I already said, which is 
if you're going to have the animal, you need to have a basic understanding of how this thing works and why it's working. Because that way, you know, you know, when the light bulb goes goes bad, you can do it. Like, not everybody can go out and buy a solarometer. They're not exactly cheap, though I hear Viptech has one that's cheaper. Uh, <laughs> I've heard that, too. Um, but, but on that same, you know, token, I, I, I just think that the way we approach things, and UVB is a great topic, uh, as a as as a I hate saying the word hobby, sorry, as a culture or passion, I just think that we really need to kind of reevaluate how we do this as a whole. Um, and it's both yeah. sides. It, it's the hardcore bio naturalistic people and it's the hardcore tub keepers. Like we all just need to kind of respect and get to the middle and, and just try to evaluate. And that's where being a scientist is pretty awesome because in science, you're supposed to take emotion out of things and just look at the data. So, yeah. uh, but with, with, with UV, that's one of the main issues is I feel that we still are in a, the intentions of UV are absolutely wonderful. And I, I, I you know, I, I feel that it's definitely a necessity for many organisms, but just to get back to the, the, the point of debate, like wh what about nocturnal animals? So we have these organisms that basically have evolved where the, the bulk of their activity is occurring when, when the, the sun is down and yeah, there, there's definitely behavioral modalities that they do that we know as ecologists, that, that, that they are, 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 are performing these behaviors that we don't realize are behaviors to get irradiated by UVB. And I can list a litany of those. But for the nocturnal <laughs> world, what, what do they need UVB? Do they not need UVB? What's, what's the deal on that front? Well, uh, if you can list one reptile that is truly nocturnal and doesn't see daylight ever, then you're good. Then, then, uh, then we have an argument. But, but there aren't any because... <laughs> They, there's no, there, you can't, like, so reptiles, this is the thing, like, nocturnal has become, like, the new N-word for me. I hate it. I hate nocturnal. They're crepuscular at best. And, like, so reptiles and amphibians, like, reptiles and amphibians don't, aren't out during, so, if, the, bats are nocturnal. The sun has gone below the horizon. It does not exist. They come out. And then they're back in before it peaks out again. They don't see sunlight almost ever. If they do, they're sick and dying, and we know that. Like, they're nocturnal. They don't do light. Reptiles, though, need like they spend their time out at night because it's maybe not 130 degrees there at night, or it that's when their food is out. But at the same time, during the day, they'll be maybe they'll uh, there was a was a study in 2000 that showed that uh, uh, desert banded geckos in Texas will stick just the head of their just the tip of their head out of their at the end of their hole just to absorb UV for 15 to 20 minutes a day. So they won't even come out. They'll just get the light that's penetrating the, the hole of their den, and they'll get it to just hit part of their body. And because their skin is thinner and they're able to absorb more of that easier than the skin of, like, a bearded dragon, they don't need it nearly as long. So all reptiles at some point are out during the day and get hit with some sort of UV, even for a short period of time. Um, Ryan, and they, can, I, can I break in for just a second on that? On that study, did they measure any kind of, of readout that would suggest that it's for UV rather than, say, heat to get their blood flowing and, and their brain working properly? As rep, we know reptiles need, you know, yeah, heat I, to I function would, properly. I would have to actually pull it back up to, to I haven't read that study in a while, but um, to give you the exact details, but it is specifically on UVB. Um, so it is about UV absorption. 
Um, but it, yeah, it was for the, it was, it was done with, uh, uh, banded geckos and collared lizards. I want to say or the other one, mm-hmm. um, they're looking at, you know, one that's obviously a high need diurnal animal versus a less need, more crepuscular, more quote, nocturnal species. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, so if you and, could, if you could point us to the, to the papers, we can, you know, make them available. If, if yeah, we can get a copy, absolutely. we can make them available on the Facebook page and people can, yeah look into this i think it's really fascinating so yeah no, sorry well, so ahead. no and this that's something that like and you were talking about like getting information to people and that, again it's shameless plug but whatever like this is what we're doing be- with me and erica are doing are changing some stuff we're doing with VivTech from how i've done it my whole life because i think it's all i think everything not everything there's a lot of that we do with keeping reptiles even the best keepers in the world that i think are wrong like mm-hmm. like for example if you tell somebody to set up a 20 gallon long for their leopard gecko and not, not, uh, not talking about UV, but let's say you say, tell them, set it up. You have 20 long, you have a hide on one corner, water on the other corner. Maybe you build the middle of it to look like the rocky hillside in Iraq. Like it's perfect. And then there's a little hide and then there's a water bowl. Mm-hmm. 90% of the footprint of that enclosure is open space. The animal only uses 10% of its life of the day. And then the 90% of the time it's spent is in its hide, which we make this big. Like we make tiny. And then mm-hmm. it's not easy to control because it's some small container or deli cup or something. So like there's a lot of things I think we need to tweak. And when it comes to UV and stuff too and explaining it, that's another thing we need to tweak. So the VivTech bulbs are probably some of the only ones that aren't called desert or tropical. And the word desert and tropical aren't on them at all. And I did that on purpose because the desert tropical like differentiation in the hobby kills me. Because when you talk desert animals, every single desert package shows you the dunes of the Sahara and every tropical package is the rainforest floor. But there's this thing where the earth has other habitats in between the forest floor of the rainforest and the Sahara dunes. Like there's tons of other things. And if we classify, I think that's a big part of what has become a problem in herpeticulture. Is, is all of this will tie into the fact that we've tried to make it so people see reptiles as an inviting and easy to care for, easy to deal with pet. They're easy for a family to have. But we keep saying easy, low maintenance, easy, and we keep dumbing it down till it's we've made it so easy that now they don't think they need to know anything. And now they're not learning anything. And then they're mm-hmm. not given the products and the things that they need to be successful because mm-hmm. they're given a kit that is the basic entry level where we where the manufacturer assumes as they get into the hobby they'll start reading and learning and that's as someone who runs where has a rescue in my house I can tell you that's not true they don't some people do it's great but a lot of people don't Zach so, do you want to respond yeah you so look like you want to say something there oh well I actually want to go all the way back to there's no such thing as a nocturnal reptile because <laughs> um, okay. that I can debate. Uh, I respectfully disagree because evolutionarily, you know, the, the concept of noc- nocturnality doesn't necessarily mean that you are only active at night and then you do not move during the day. What that means from an ecological perspective is that you are active 80% of the time or more normally in a given 12 hour, not 12 hour, but basically a certain photon level, you know, between civil twilight and swivel daylight, all that kind of good stuff. Um, and there's plenty of adaptations that, that herps have that are specific to having the majority of your activity be at night. Like we have vertical pupils in uh, nocturnal animals so they can open their iris up all the way 
Um, and then like the tapetum lucidum and crocodiles and certain species of lizards, which reflects the light around in there. So, you know, in, in those organisms, there's also direct correlations to UVB. So like there are several species of geckos, hemidactylic geckos come to mind, that um, have a very thin stratum corneum, that outer layer of skin. And, you know, it has been shown that when they are exposed to sunlight, uh, they can irradiate a little bit faster. And if you were to douse that thing with UVB and, and not view it as a nocturnal animal, you, you're running into some potential problems. Um, when animals bounce between, we call that cathermal. So basically that that's where they, they are sometimes diurnal, sometimes nocturnal, but they are fundamentally, you know, there are plenty of adaptations associated with nocturnality and plenty of adaptations with di, di, blah, being diurnal, blah. And that's one of the, the, the ideas behind snakes not needing UVB is the fact that you know, that all started way back when in herpetology because they don't have the parietal eye. Um, and when you look, and, and that is theorized, one of the origins for snakes is that they basically, you know, during the age of dinosaurs, there were a million lizard things, for lack of a better word. And this group of squamates was like, hell no, I'm not going to live up here on the surface. I'm going to go underground. <laughs> and when you go underground, you got a whole bunch of holes in your head. You got a problem. So the ear went away and that parietal eye uh, went away. And when they came back up, at, you know, a function of that was they went from having three rods and rods and cones to two rods and cones. And as a part of that, their circadian rhythm wasn't or their, their way of interpreting their environment was not reliant on sunshine. Hence the reason why we say they don't need UVB or UVA. That's the actual science, you know behind all of that. And even with those animals that supposedly don't have this cue or this ability to tell what time of day it is, which is kind of nonsense, um, if you put them on a 12-hour 12 12, 12 light cycle, 12-hour dark cycle, and then you put them in a dark room for 24 hours, they will. if they're a nocturnal species, they will be active during the 12-hour period that was dark. And if it's a diurnal species, you know they're slithering around in the darkness during the 12-hour period that was day. So they, they, they have that. Uh, and same thing, if you take a nocturnal snake and make it all light, they have that, that evolutionary response that tells them, it should be dark now, this is when I should be active. Uh, but when they're exposing themselves to the sun, sure, they're getting UVB, uh, but they're also, like what Justin alluded to, there's an awful lot of thermoregulation because they've got to get their body temperature up to have enzymes work and neurons fire and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, and that's one of the interesting aspects of UVA and UVB that I don't think people realize is that when you don't provide UVA or UVB, you're basically providing permanent um, uh, evening or permanent uh, you know, sunup. So they never really get that cue that tells them, it's the middle of the day, I need to go bask. And that's something I don't think people realize happens when you deny these animals you know, that radiation. Uh, but no. I don't know if we want to go down that path because that's actually something I'm going to date and not be like an asshole. So, <laughs> well, that, yeah, no. that brings up a good point is anyway. if they're crepuscular, you know, yeah. it, how much irradiation is occurring at that time versus, you know, later in the day and all that kind of thing. But yeah, it'd be interesting. And another kind of scientific, you know, rattling in my head is, you know, has, has, have any of these bulbs been compared directly with animals in the sun to see if they have comparable physiologies or, or you know, processes occurring? I think that would be the best, you know, yeah. 
control. That sounds like a great master's project. Yeah. Yeah. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that, right? Yeah, like yeah. I, I was. I, I, there were. We've been since, since we talked. Like, uh, yeah. oh yeah, we're gonna talk more. I got. You, you, yeah. you, I got some. I got some projects for you. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. but I think, and and I agree. Like, I know that I know that that's not totally true with the nocturnal crepuscular thing. It's just to try and explain that to people. People hear nocturnal, and that's what they hear. So that's been my explanations yeah. from then on. Because if you say nocturnal, they're like, well, they never see light. Like they're not. They don't live in a cave underground. Like they're mm-hmm. just. They hunt at night because that's when their food's out, or they're out at night because it's cooler. Like a lot of times they've evolved that way, or whatever. But the other, like the other piece of it too is with uh with snakes is um oh lost my thought never mind this is gone <laughs> okay Just old age there you go counter that yeah. I, I, had a, I had a question if you know maybe the the biologist in you wanted to 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 speak to do do you think animals that that bask in the sun monitors stuff that that will be out there do you think that that visible spectrum that 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 solar insulation that heat is a regulatory function for uv so i guess my question would be if you're if if you're an animal who's not receiving that that high heat insulation that you're used to getting with the sun and you're in a an enclosure where you're getting a lot of uv there's no cue for you to say, man, I'm, I'm hot. I'm done. I'm good. Uh, because you're receiving your UV along with your, with your thermal insulation. Is that something that you think yes. could possibly be a regulatory mechanism for UV within reptiles? Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, if you actually look at thermoregulatory studies from the field and there's back in the thirties the through the seventies, there's so much research that went on just, studying how reptiles are reptiles that is directly applicable to a herp to a herpetoculturist in 2021 and there were there were lots of studies done with things like crotophytus which are um uh, collar lizards where they would show that they actually would bat you know, there's a there's a direct correlation with as soon as they start to get warm they go out and they bask and then by the time the midday sun hits they're cooked to the point where they're running around and they're seeking out microhabitats where they can get out of the sun and it just so happens that as they're getting up to temperature they're also being irradiated with uvb but they're being irradiated with the 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 i don't want to say better but i don't know a, a more appropriate word the safer there we go amount of uvb <laughs> and so once they get to temperature you're right they, they they move and i could totally see where if you have the highest uvb bulb um and you're lizard gets directly underneath it but it never gets the temperature it doesn't get that cue that tells it okay run and go explore and when they're running and interpreting with their environment what many people don't realize is that you know they're out there basking in the sun they get the temperature now they're they're hunting they're foraging and they're actually running through a natural uv gradient in nature because they run into the shade and then the uv radiation drops down to nothing and then they run back out of the open and it goes back up and then they're kind of in that dappled sunshine and gets to the middle um and in human care, that's, I think, the part that people don't realize is we talk about heat gradients all the time, but these animals, without question, absolutely must have a UV gradient as well. Um, and so if you don't, that's getting back to the education piece. Yeah. If, if keeper doesn't understand that and they're just told light bulb here, you know, and there's no gradient, then and then they're not getting the bearded dragon to temperature, you could be running into some problems. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... That and middle ground, you know, teach, teach, teach. I think that that needs to be ever present in herpetoculture. Right. 
I think that that's that's um... <sighs> dude. It's too late. My brain is shutting off. Uh, <laughs> no, but um, the, the the there's two things. One, um, I, again, another study. I gotta find it. But Erica was reading something the other day where uh, a UV article um, that was or a paper that was talking about uh, reptiles using. The, their 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 vision of UVA to find basking spots instead of heat signatures, which I thought was really interesting. So um, there could be some correlation there. Um, and then another thing to realize too is the UV that like the UV that the sun gives off, we would never want to recreate in a bulb. Like the, right. if I go outside and click UVB, my UVB meter, I don't want that in my house at all. And what you said is incredibly important. Every single parameter of a terrarium or an animal's habitat, everything should be a gradient. We need to stop talking indefinites. Like, we need to stop talking that the basking spot should be 92 degrees, no matter what it is, whatever. Where in the world is it always 92 degrees? And how do you, and you think that, like, people think that these animals, I, like, you watch the, board, like, the Herb Society group. You know, oh, my, I can only get my, my ball python up to 86 degrees to bask. I can't get it any higher. Like, okay. That sounds good. 86 is like where you, they want to be if they warm up, like just watch their body temp, see how they do. Or it's or it's it's 98, not 92. They didn't evolve for millions of years to not be able to handle one degree of fluctuation. So you need to be able to create a heat gradient, but you also need a UV gradient. You also need a, a humidity gradient. And that's where micro right, microclimates come into play, where you've got different spots that have different humidity. You have to provide all of that. Re the reality, I think, comes to it is when, when we're talking about caring for these animals, instead of trying to dial in like their exact basking temp and the, it needs to be 70% humidity, it should be, everything should be a range, everything. Their humidity should be from like 50 to 90. Like that's a giant range, but that's the range of most places in the world. I mean, granted again, like the bottom of the rainforest, probably not that big of a swing, but you're still going to see 20 to 30% swing in humidity, especially a lot of these island countries where, you know, it, like just, yeah, there's a gradient is needed for everything. Um, and, and I think if we looked at our husbandry in more broad and create, okay, what is the, the, the peak that we need and the lowest you can go and just make a gradient in between. And that's one thing too, when it comes to UV that why I've completely shied away from telling anybody to use tubes. I don't, I don't like tube UV just because of that fact that if you have it on an enclosed, like most tanks are, are thin and long. So if you take a thin, long tube and put it across that four foot by 12 inch footprint, the, the UV gradient is vertical from the floor up to the bulb, but front to back and side to side, it's almost the same unless they can climb on things. So you're really, for people who do a really minimalistic setup, that animal is stuck getting hammered all the time and it can't get away. Versus if you're able to do a spotlight, you can hit them with a, a, actually a more intense UV because they can get there and then they can easily get away from it. So I think you're able with a spotlight to create a more natural UV for them as well by hitting them with a higher output that they would seek out because they're able to move away from it. So because of that, you can create a better gradient. And then on top of it, with spots, I usually do two spotlights, one that hits right where the heat is. So they associate that UV and that heat together. But I also do one on the other side of the tank and I hit it at somewhere that has no heat. It's either mid-range temperature in the tank and they'll bask directly under that UV light without the heat attached to it. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a, there was a, that was another study that came out. I want to say it was like eight eight or nine years ago that showed uh, it was a study on chameleons. I want to say it was panther chameleons. 
um, actually actively seeking out UV independent of the heat source. So that's been a big thing that I've tried to implement into a lot of caging too. But um, yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's, it's all about the gradients. How do you create multiple gradients and multiple spaces and let like they know what they need better than we do. We just need to provide them with the opportunities to find what they need. And that's where we fail as keepers is when we're not providing them the, uh, the, the bandwidth that they need to find where they're comfortable. All right. Any, any last points? Maybe we can have a summary, uh, you know, kind of sum it up and, and, uh, we'll, we're getting, we're, we're past our hour. So, you know, we can, wrap it up i mean there's a ton of good uh discussion topics here and i really appreciate you guys and your insights this yeah, has this been fantastic been, yeah, it's been really great. a great discussion I, i'm so just thank impressed you. It's, it's it's been so smooth because like yeah. <laughs> try, good job zach trying to argue against uv like I, yeah our conversations i was like the only way i can do that is if i just intentionally sound like an idiot that doesn't care about animals yeah so like i appreciate you bringing like a, a more you know sophisticated person to that side no, thank you. Yeah. Well, some people call me an idiot, so there's that. <laughs> hey, the more you learn, the more you learn. You don't know much. Yeah. You know? yeah. I think yeah. I've come to the conclusion that I'm a complete idiot. You know, mm -hmm. there's so yeah. much to learn, and and as soon as you think I've got it all figured out, or you start saying things like that, yeah, then you can know they don't know much. <laughs> yeah. That's 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 what I love with this hot with herpeticulture, though. You know, yeah. like every species. We are, that's the other thing about how pediculture that people need to realize. This is an insanely young hobby, insanely mm -hmm. young. Like the first UVB bulb hit the market in 1993. Mm. So what, not even 30 years ago, the first UV bulb hit the market. People were mm. actively keeping these animals in the late eighties. So like in my lifetime, this is what the hobby truly existed as a hobby or as an industry it was in the nineties and past. And like, so we do have a lot to learn and we do have a lot of, I think a long way to go, but I think the biggest thing that people can do is just start to really understand that the hobby is substantially behind the scientific community and the knowledge that they have on how these animals exist in their habitats. And if we would take some of that and, and learn from that, we could jump ahead 30 or 40 years instead of puddling through the crap and the sludge that we're dealing with now. And that's one thing too, that again, Shameless plug for VivTech. Um, <laughs> we have some uh, veterinarians and uh, uh, herpetological um, um, academics that will be writing up uh, summaries for us for the website to break down things like this. Like um, a, a friend of mine is finishing up his doctorate in California on, on herpetology. He just did a huge study on all the sidewinder species and their distribution and, and genetics throughout the U.S. is really cool. And uh, so he's going to take three papers on the parietal eye and UVA. And then he's going to break those papers down into two paragraphs that an eighth grader can understand. And Perfect. then we're going to post those with the articles below him if people want to read them. But mm. at the same time, we're going to pull all that knowledge out and just stick it here in a clip it and a snippet so you can yeah. take that and know it. And those guys are just going to keep doing that. They're going to take two or three articles that, about a topic and they're going to condense it down to one easy to digest paragraph. And a whole section of our website is just going to be papers written by, you know, professionals looking at those papers and writing a, a, a synopsis that allows ever, anybody, like my nine-year-old daughter, to go read it and give me an explanation of how does that actually relate to how you keep your animal. And I think that's going to – I'm hoping that that will break that bridge. I think that we – with all talking about all the papers and the data that's out there, 
I think we scare away first time people from being able to feel like they can understand it because reading a scientific paper to somebody who's not in any kind of science, that is, that's a, it's a scary thing. That's a big hill to look up. Like just even, even just understanding how that a study was done and how a hypothesis, what that means compared to just the results. It's so difficult for someone to understand that. And I think that if we, as we take more opportunities as ourselves, everybody right here, as well as all the other you know, advanced level herpetoculturists and, and, and herpetologists and biologists and all that, and we continue to take that information and put it out there in easily digestible snippets, I think we'll continue to improve yep. the hobby. That would be great. That's, that's perfect. That was exactly what I was just going to recommend you do as you're doing this research, <laughs> yep. you know, dumb it down and simplify it and make yeah. people so they can and understand. Topics. One could almost say that the scientific community writes it that way so that the lay person doesn't, you know, isn't, isn't necessarily in that group. So that, yeah. I agree oh, yeah. with that. But, and but they, they, could, they could absolutely read it and go the opposite way and take it wrong. Like every <laughs> yeah. news station ever does when they talk about any study that yeah. ever came out. Ever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but on that, that token, I can say that oftentimes yeah, the, the tribalism of herpetoculture, when the, when the paper comes out that says what your argument is, then you <laughs> latch onto it because there was a paper that came out I don't know when in the past decade, I'll just throw it out. I don't know the exact time because it's late for me over here. But um, and it basically said that when they were investigating the, the whether um, D3 concentration went up in ball pythons that were exposed to D to UVB and their results were no, it doesn't. And, you know, immediately that was latched onto, And that's been actually people have messaged that to me after they've heard me on podcast saying we need to use UVB. And that same person that's sending me that obviously didn't read the other nine papers that clearly show that when you expose snakes to UVB, the calcium deposition in their ribs goes up and you end up getting a healthier animal, even though they don't have the parietal eye and they don't have as direct a um, um, pathway. So, you know, my my request of herpetoculture is if VivTech's going to put that stuff out and it challenges the way that you do something, don't say, well, this is the way I've always done it. You know, actually look at that and then be like, huh, well, maybe I should change a little bit. And if we do that, that's going to help herpetoculture because whether we want to say it or not, you know, herpetoculture is under attack. And the people that are coming after you know, this, they have science, they have academics. And if they're going against a, a hobby that doesn't want to hear this coming you know, from me, that always is saying, oh, well, that science is against us. And it was made to be against us. It's not. If, if we were to look at that science and be like, huh. Well, maybe we should change something. And then we were to change something for the better. You just shut down their argument. And then you're showing them yeah. that we actually care and, and blah, blah, blah. And then that might actually help us all in the end. So, yeah, one of the biggest things that, that we have hopefully coming out within the next year is taking the LED UVA, UVB and putting it into thin strips that can be mounted inside, routed into the PVC inside racks. So we can get UVA, UVB plant lights inside a rack. And at that point, you could actually, you could do dart frog enclosures in a rack. I mean, that would totally change everything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you could totally change how you did everything. And I think, but like, uh, that, that came to me because of that study, the couple studies that came out on racks and whether they're, they're ethical or not for animals. And you get a lot of people who jump up and freaked out about it. But at the same time, like, you, like, read it, look at it, and... The big thing for me is as soon as we think we're done and we, we're doing good enough, that's when we lose. And like even my own collection, I've, I've created some amazing enclosures. I have a 
55 gallon rainforest next to me that's filled with tadpoles and their animals. It's all, it's awesome. But at the same time, it's still not good enough. Like I still know I can do better and, and the technology might not be there yet. And the science might not be there yet, but I still know that I could do better. And I think that, 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 that stretch to always do better is what will keep the hobby moving forward. The second that you think you know everything and you've got it down and you don't need to learn anymore, that's when you die. That's when that's when everything that's when you stop being able to ever do anything better. Yeah. All right. Well, I think Go that's a, a good way to finish <laughs> off this discussion. And uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate your time and thanks for coming on. Maybe we'll have to have you back and you can take the other side, you know, and, and uh, as you as you do more research and figure out, you know, holes in, in your logic or whatnot. Um, but yeah, I really, really appreciate you guys coming on. This yeah. has been a, yeah. a great Thanks, discussion, no, and I, I think a lot of people are going to benefit from this. Fun, yeah. 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 We'll have to have round two or, you know, maybe a different topic. You guys are well versed in a lot of different topics and, and, you know, your contributions to herpetoculture and herpetology is, is great. And I, you know, I applaud you for that. So thanks again for being on both uh, Zach and Ryan. Yep. Thank you guys. Thank All you. Right. This was fun. Well, uh, <laughs> Another great episode. Uh, thanks for listening and uh, check out all the uh, podcasts under the um, the Morelli Pythons Network. And, uh, you know, we'll catch you next week. Have Later. A good one. <laughs>